All right, well, let's jump back into Thessalonians. I guess kind of our excursus through Thessalonians. We actually won't be starting in Thessalonians. You don't need to turn there right away. Uh, so I'll kind of do a little bit of review of how we got to where we are. Um, just because as we continue on this little excursus here, I don't want us to get lose sight of kind of where we are. Maybe it'll be like an orienting review to, to keep us remembering how we got here, what we're doing here, now what to expect from this. And then also if some of you were gone last week, you'll kind of understand what we are doing. So um, as we jump in here, uh, we've been looking at, got into verse 2 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And there we were seeing that Paul shares with the Thessalonians the thanks he gives to God because of them and because of what he's seeing God do in their life. And Paul, in many ways, there sets out a pattern for us for Thanksgiving, a pattern of Thanksgiving for us. You guys might remember we talked last week about how we can certainly see a pattern about what kinds of things are priorities, what kinds of things should we be thanking the Lord for, but not just priorities in terms of what we give thanks for, but really priorities across the board, like in any domain, because whatever we prioritize is going to come out in our Thanksgiving. But if it's coming out in our Thanksgiving, it probably should be coming out elsewhere. I noted when we first talked about this, just a, how should we say this, a, a general consistency across the board in Paul's priorities, however they manifested themselves. The things he petitioned the Lord for are the same kinds of things he thanks the Lord for. The things he thanks the Lord for are the same kinds of things that he strives for and labors for and evidences concern for in his letters. So there's a consistency there that allows us to find in this pattern that we find in Paul's Thanksgiving, not just a pattern for our Thanksgiving, but more broadly even for our priorities. So for that reason, I framed up this section, verses 2 through 7, as three lessons from Paul's Thanksgiving to shape our priorities. And we just kind of jumped into lesson one before we took this excursus. Lesson one, the priority of Thanksgiving. And here we considered several ways that we can see the prominent, we can see the priority of Thanksgiving for Paul. And I framed it up as the pr uh, prominent place of Thanksgiving for Paul. And I said three areas we see that. I don't know if that's up here. Yeah, there it is. The prominent place of Thanksgiving in Paul's letters. We simply see that all of his letters give a considerable amount of space to Thanksgiving. The prominent place of Thanksgiving in Paul's life, we see in his letters that it's, it's a habitual pattern of his life to be giving thanks. And then we also see the prominent place of Thanksgiving in Paul's theology, which is where we are right now. Just continuing to look this week and probably even for another week beyond that at this prominent place of Thanksgiving for Paul. And as I noted at this point, we, we aren't deriving this from anything in verse 2. This is really kind of a, a topical excursus um, that hopefully is helpful for us, just to think about how Paul thought about Thanksgiving before we then try to apply it. So under this point, we're just asking what Paul understood about Thanksgiving that led him to give it such a prominent place. How do you think about Thanksgiving? And we said there are two ways we can answer this question possibly more, but two that I've drawn out. One would be just look at Paul's letters themselves. It's a pretty obvious place to start, right? But as anyone knows, when you try to kind of understand the, the theological perspective of any biblical author on any particular topic, we, we have limited material to work from. 
So with Paul, you've got his 13 letters, right? So you can think about, like on any topic, Paul's theology of whatever, or the theology of Paul as evidenced in his letters, and, and that's an easy way to limit yourself to his letters. But if you want to like what he thinks on a variety of topics more broadly, well, there's probably a whole lot he thinks that can be, he doesn't state, but you could probably infer from his background. The Old Testament was massively influential for Paul. So wherever the Old Testament's addressed something, we can pretty much understand how Paul's going to think about it. But also Paul was raised as a Jew, right? He was raised as a Jew within the, the Judaism, the, the milieu of Judaisms of the first century. And so apart from where he's very explicitly deviating from them, he largely probably thinks about things somewhat similarly. So even from that perspective, that's another way we kind of fill in the gaps. And our goal is not just to kind of like fill in all these gaps as much as to understand the assumptions that Paul doesn't state, right? That make sense of what he does state, but he doesn't spell out for us. So we started last week by looking at number one, Paul's own comments. And we looked first at two texts from 2 Corinthians that I said kind of give us an entrance into Paul's thinking about Thanksgiving. 2 Corinthians 4.15 and then 2 Corinthians 9.10 through 12. Just to really briefly review those. In that first one, 2 Corinthians 4.15, we saw that Paul presents a chain of events. God's grace spreading to many people. It's the first thing he mentions, the first event. The next event is that others are giving thanks to God because of the spread of this grace. And the result of that, the third chain, is that God's being glorified by that thanksgiving. And I just made several observations from this text that are relevant to our study. One is that in terms of how God is glorified, the last link in the chain, thanksgiving is a critical link between God's work of redemption and his being glorified. God wants his people to observe his redemptive work being played out around them and then to turn around and praise him for it. And it's not just his redemptive work in people's lives that glorifies him, but specifically the delight of those he's already saved in seeing that happen that glorifies him. And then we also noted from this text that um, the reason for giving thanks is not something they received. Remember, in this text, they're giving thanks because they're seeing God's grace at work in other people's lives, which kind of messes with the category of thanksgiving in some sense, right? Thanksgiving, we tend to think of as being being thankful for something you received. You give me something, I can be thankful for it. But rarely do we thank someone for having done something in someone else's life, right? But in this case, we're kind of seeing that for Paul, thanksgiving really is a bit just of a broader category of worshiping God or praising God for what he's doing, for the work that he's doing. And so we said that we could even drive from this text kind of that principle of thanksgiving for Paul is praise, it is worship. And then in 2 Corinthians 9, 10 to 12, this was just another text that evidences how Paul thinks about thanksgiving. And in this text, Paul says that God gives to his people as stewards, so he entrusts material possessions to his people so that they will be generous in giving what they receive to others. And then this generous giving of those who have been transformed by God's grace, such that they don't have to hoard it, right? They feel free to let it go. They understand their role as stewards, not as just consumers, that as um, this generous giving is passing through, those people have been so transformed by God's grace, this is going to result in thanksgiving to God as people see their generosity. And in that text, and Paul says in verse 12 that the thanksgiving is not coincidental 
in all of this. It's not just something that he mentions in passing, oh, maybe some thanksgiving will be offered as well. In fact, he rejoices over two outcomes of his work to collect money for the poor believers in Jerusalem and to deliver it to them. One of the outcomes in that was that the needs of the saints will be met, but the other outcome he rejoices over is that it will lead to overflowing thanksgiving to God. So even in all of this work that Paul's doing to, to gather money all around the Mediterranean and take it back to the poor believing Jews in Jerusalem and kind of the mother, the mother church there, um, he's saying, yeah, of course it will, it'll meet their needs. But more important than that, they're going to be giving thanks to God and God will be glorified in that. You know, it's just interesting to me and compelling that Paul would put the thanksgiving being given to God uh, as such a place of priority and then, after looking at these two texts, I gave us a summary of how Paul thought about thanksgiving. And here's all of kind of what we, what we thought through here. Incorporating some of those conclusions from what we saw in the 2 Corinthians text, but then going a bit beyond that. So, number one, we saw that for Paul, thanksgiving is essentially praise or worship. And I tried to put that kind of into, into a context of, you could say, salvation history, kind of what God's doing in the world. And you might really just think about the importance of it for Paul from this perspective. Have you ever heard someone say something um, like, you know, God created or we were created for God's worship to worship God. And so if we were created to worship God, but we go off the rails because of sin, then really God's work of redemption is to restore that. Right. So we were redeemed to worship the Lord. Or maybe from another angle, you've heard that like missions exists because what doesn't? Worship doesn't. Right. Because worship doesn't. Missions exist because worship doesn't. There are places around the world where, where Yahweh isn't being worshipped, so he, he ought to be worshipped by them, right? So we go to them that he might be worshipped. And so in many ways, when you think about it in those categories, the prominence or the priority of thanksgiving being a form of worship makes sense, doesn't it? That this is what Paul wants to see being restored wherever he goes. The Lord's due worship. Secondly, for Paul, thanksgiving entailed a theological assertion and I tried to walk us through kind of how this plays out with these various assertions. Um, if we thank God for something he provides, then it, it entails, if it's something he created, then that he's creator, right? Why would we thank God for that? Here I use the silly example of the beef, right? Um, like a beef tenderloin, right? The Lord, the one who like designed all of this so that we would actually have that, that there would, that would be existing something we could enjoy. It makes no sense to thank God for a nice steak if he's not the creator, if he didn't create the cows. Secondly, um, God is the providential sustainer. So that talks about creation and whatever it is because God created it. But what about all of the events that happen in the course of everyday life that aren't really quite so obviously tied to his role as creator, but we can still thank God for those things because they are tied to his role as providential sustainer, right? The one who's in control of all things. And then a third theological assertion, let me say before I mention this one, there are, of course, a lot of other theological assertions that are entailed in our thanksgiving. I just tried to draw out some that immediately came to my mind. A third one is that God is good and wise in all he does. The connection there is, yeah, we can recognize that God's sovereign over whatever happens, but that doesn't necessarily lead us to want to give thanks just because he's responsible for it, right? <laughs> we have to believe that it's actually good for us. That's actually the best thing for us. And so this is another theological assertion entailed in that. 
And this is why that last theological assertion is why we can give thanks not only in all circumstances, as like 1 Thessalonians 5 calls us to do, but as Ephesians 5 calls us to do, we can give thanks for all things. Well, that's a bit of a different matter now, right? To actually give thanks for everything, not just in every circumstance, but for everything. Even those things that are so painful in your life, to be able to give thanks to God for those things necessarily entails that we believe both B and C, right? That God's sovereignly involved in that and that he was good and wise in orchestrating that. So theological assertions entailed in thanksgiving. And that's even tied back to number one, because when we're thanking him, we're affirming these truths about him, which is praising him, right? It's worshiping him that we're recognizing these things about him. And then third, I really tried here to just help us think through the ways that the culture we live, live in kind of shapes some of our categories. And in this case, particularly the category of thanksgiving, such that when we come to the text, into a topic like this, we, we bring in certain freight, right? Certain categories, certain ways of thinking about thanksgiving that may not align with the biblical authors. And it's one thing to always hear like what, what the biblical text does mean, but sometimes it's helpful to kind of look at, well, this is how we tend to think about it and compare them side by side. That's a helpful part of mind renewal, of changing our thinking according to the patterns, pattern of scripture. If we can know what the competing patterns, or at least the chief competing patterns out there are around us. Does that make sense? So I first tried to lay out kind of a perspective on Thanksgiving in the modern West, that it's a, it's a matter of etiquette, right? We simply thank people. That's like what you ought to do. It's the appropriate thing to do. It's the way you sustain and nurture relationships. Gifts are given and people give thanks in return. Or sometimes even gifts in return. But it's a matter of etiquette. And then number two, it's an emotional sense. There's a sense of gratitude. Um, I think this is probably pretty clear to all of us. And I didn't read this before, but this was a helpful little quotation. Um, that I'll just read to us. To, I mean, you guys will all recognize this in here, but you'll see how this is a sense, an emotional sense when I read this. This is from um, the Australian Medical Association in an article titled Practicing Gratitude as a Tool for Self-Care. Here's what a portion of the article reads. Research has shown that people who regularly practice gratitude are taking time by taking time to notice and reflect upon the things they're thankful for, experience more positive emotions, they relish good experiences, they feel more alive, they sleep better, they express more compassion and kindness, they build stronger relationships, they have stronger immune systems, and improved health, and deal better with adversity. The science behind this is that gratitude enhances dopamine and serotonin release, which enhances our mood. Now, I, my point on that is not to like laugh at the connection there, because there really is a what's technically called like a psychosomatic connection between how we're thinking and how our bodies function, how our bodies are functioning physiologically, and what's going on in our minds. So th there's a reality to what they're talking about, but the point is just like it's not about praising God, glorifying him, or really even like showing appropriate appreciation to other people, right? It's all about kind of this emotional sense, how I'm doing, my, my kind of emotional well-being. Do you guys see that? And how that kind of comes through there. So I think that's a second way in which we often think about gratitude. 
And I probably, to be fair here, should acknowledge there's almost like a third sense. It's a bit closer to the biblical example of actually thanking people for things that maybe goes a bit beyond just etiquette. So here I was probably being a bit simplistic because I was trying to draw the ways that are distinct, right, from the biblical way, the ways that we might be tempted to think about it that aren't helpful. And so this week, I want to start looking at how the Old Testament informed Paul's perspective on gratitude. Remember, we were going to first look at Paul's letters and then the Old Testament, how that informs it. And that's what we'll do this week. But first, before we move on, I do want to kind of allow some interaction here. Um, any thoughts, particularly the last things we talked about last week in terms of like what, what gratitude looks like in the modern West and just being cautious about these kind of overly, I called it last time, therapeutic approaches to gratitude. Any thoughts? Go ahead, Jed. What did you, what did you guys specifically, in terms of number three, with your time across the seas, was it any different? Or is it, was it just as much of an issue there, thinking, in the way we think of Thanksgiving, with what you experienced while you were in Africa? Yeah. Good question. I would say that I certainly observed how, when I say uniquely, I make an extreme statement. I'm moving from the data of observing two cultures to saying that because this one's different, it's unique. That's not really fair. How different, at least, the West is in how like oriented we are to how we feel. So where they would tend more so to would be a matter of etiquette, but really going beyond that, like the balance of society depends upon this. Knowing when to give gifts and being generous with things, like all of that is about nurturing relationships on which everything hinges. So yeah, and then appropriate gratitude, right? So making sure you thank people, give gifts in return. I mean, there's like a whole science behind it um, to be able to maintain the equilibrium in the society and kind of what's expected. But that was much more so than the matter of kind of how I feel about it. My amateur assessment of that is that you have to be you have to reach a certain level of affluence to where you aren't on a daily basis wondering how you're going to meet your basic needs to begin to be so obsessed with how you feel. Does that make sense? If you're wondering, what am I going to eat today? You aren't too concerned about how you feel, right? You're worried about making sure you eat. It's only when those things are all secured and now you're wondering, well, what else is there in life to pursue if I'm kind of assuming that I'm going to make it to, to the end of my life and I'm going to you know, have access to good medical care, I'm going to have the food I need. Well, now I'm looking for fulfillment in a good life in another way, right? So that's my amateur assessment. Is that kind of along the lines of what you were thinking? Yeah. Any other thoughts? Just had a question. Yeah. Like how people would be feeling better and they could be like on a pathway to hell, not converted. Yeah. But with God, is it possible that God could be blessing like via common grace, just the obedience of them being thankful? Yeah. I kind of skipped over a whole page here near the end because, number one, we were running out of time. And number two, I think it must be like the time change. Then now that we're meeting here, closer to lunchtime, you guys were all looking very sleepy last week. <laughs> so I decided it was time to, time to speed up and skip over this. <laughs> um, but yeah, basically this is how I framed up the question I was answering in a page. How should we assess this pseudo-virtue of gratitude that's promoted in the world? And so basically I just note that like, it makes sense that God's the creator of all things, right? So when he creates something, it's not surprising that when even unbelievers in rebellion try to use it, that it achieves some measure of success, right? 
The issue is that as rebels, we take all of God's creation and rather than exercising dominion over it for his glory, right, we turn it in on ourselves, worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator, right? And so it becomes all focused on worshiping us rather than him. And at some level, that's self-defeating. Like the very fact that you're living in rebellion against your creator, contrary to the purpose you have, means that any sort of help you can get in kind of how you feel about life is going to be somewhat short-term, right? And limited. It's appropriate, I might say, to feel purposelessness, purposeless in life when you're defying the very purpose the creator gave you. Does that sound fair? Um, but yet, God, even looking at rebels, allows them to gain some measure of benefit from those common graces. Isn't that incredible? That he would allow some of that? Um, so, yeah, I think there's just a reality that when people tell you, like, oh, yeah, I'm finding benefit from gratitude. I don't feel any need to push back against that. But to point them to a higher benefit, right? What you're seeing is almost like a, a skeleton of the real thing. It's so much richer and more than what you know here, you know? And so is that kind of what you were thinking? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's just helpful to take note of that. And I think it's helpful, too, because part of what I was maybe anticipating as I asked you guys for feedback on that was some pushback because – in some ways, the therapeutic world we live in is just so much of the, the water we swim in, using their metaphor of like fish, right? They don't really realize that's what you swim in and you push back against. It's kind of like, ah, is that really fair? That's the way like, we, we all tend to think. And so I don't want to be overly harsh. I, I don't want to be harsh at all. I want to be charitable in that regard. And yet also, where, where worldliness, meaning worldly ways of thinking about things that are contrary to scripture, are threatening to slip into our thinking, it's helpful to unmask that, right? To point it out and say, be cautious there. That's, that's not a biblical way of thinking about it. But then we just, we particularly live in a culture that likes to swing pendulums, right? You're like just, you're either on one side or the other on things. And so you can very quickly go from, from saying one thing to saying another, from saying that the, the problem with the world is at, is at root, you know, this is one option, right? The problem at the root, the major problems in the world are um, mental illness problems, and they can be solved through professional therapists. And then on the far other end of the extreme, that the whole discipline of psychology has not one iota of anything credible to say, right? That'd be like the other far extreme, and neither of those are true. Um, there's just all different levels at which we have to think about those types of things. There's plenty of hard science ways of thinking about psychology that can be helpful, that are making good observations, and they can document those. The problem is when you move from making observations to now trying to assess why those things happen, you're necessarily filtering it through a value system, right? A grid, and unless that's biblical, you're gonna be wrong, right? And then you go to prescribe prescriptions, sorry for the redundancy, then it's, you're even more so kind of making value assessments that depend upon your worldview. And so it's at that level that I just don't think you can wholesale kind of swallow what comes from kind of the secular ways of approaching that. Uh, Bobby? Oh yeah, I was just gonna say, I, I feel like even though there are some of those benefits, it still is important to point out that that system only takes you so far. Totally. Because really it leads to stoicism, right? I mean, where you're just put on a happy face, no matter what happens, I'm going to be grateful. Yeah. But we don't see that in the psalm. We see David wrestling. He's, he's okay with ups and, and lows. Yeah. And because his rock is Christ. Yeah, yeah. So it's totally different. It's not a That's good. stoicism at all. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Totally. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
And again, I think there's balance there, like so in some sense, so I'm calling a pseudo virtue and a skeleton, right? I'm wanting to highlight the discontinuity. It's not the real thing. And yet there is still some measure of similarity between it, some measure, um, but just really gutted of like the essence of the greatest value. In medicine in America, yep. a lot of it is focused on treatment of symptoms rather than treatment of the root cause of the disease. And I feel like the secular world taking gratefulness out of what it's tied to is yep. is Christ. Yeah. Is treatment of the symptom of feeling sad. Totally. Rather than, well let's get to the get to the root. What are you thinking of what's your mindset towards yourself? Is your mindset towards yourself, I deserve to be happy. Yep. Then I'm gonna use this gratefulness to be happy rather than is your mindset, I don't deserve anything good. Yeah, yeah. Christ did everything for me. I'm internally more grateful in a vastly deeper way towards Christ yep. than if I was just saying I should wake up and say positive affirmations about myself. Correct, correct. Yep. And even what you're expecting at that point is entirely different. In that case, you're kind of like, you'll go through the, the thankfulness practices, and then it's like you're taking your emotional pulse, right? How am I feeling now? Am I better now? Am I not? And it just leads to a lot of self-orientation, whereas I think the Pauline model and the biblical model be you wake up, you praise the Lord for all that he's doing, and you recognize you're a servant of him, and you get to work trusting him to provide the resources to do what, what's going to glorify him, right? And you thank him for whatever he does through you. And I think really when you take your eyes off yourself is when you actually do begin to gain the benefits of that. But the whole key is as soon as you start now making that the ultimate goal, then you kind of you come back around and you're focusing on yourself, you know? So I think... The, the biblical model is you lose sight of yourself in serving the Lord, and then you end up living the most blessed you possibly could be because you're doing exactly what the Creator called you to do, right? So, yeah, hopefully that's just helpful kind of to take that little excursus and look at that distinction. But we'll continue with that here as we now kind of further elaborate the biblical perspective from an Old Testament perspective. So, yeah, Thanksgiving in the Old Testament. When we think about Thanksgiving in the Old Testament, we probably think about things like Israel grumbling in the wilderness, which would be an appropriate thing to think about. Near the end of this, I'm going to think about ingratitude and all that Scripture says about ingratitude, and that'll be one important text. Um, we might think about uh, Thanksgiving psalms, right? Psalms that feature a lot of Thanksgiving. There would be another place in the Old Testament we could go to. In fact, we'll look at one particular passage, Psalm 50, here before we're done today. But it really goes beyond that, affirming all those things, but beyond that, in many ways, thanksgiving is woven into the fabric of the Old Testament. At the heart of the Old Testament and all of salvation history are covenants. I'm going to take a little bit of time to explain that and to explain how that has relevance to thanksgiving, so bear with me. What do we mean by covenant? Can anyone take a stab at trying to explain what I mean by covenant? Go ahead. Yeah, a promise or a vow. Good. So generally speaking, a covenant is an agreement that often could just be a promise, kind of going one direction, that's then, I'll say it this way, made more solemn by swearing an oath. Like we make tons of agreements, right? Yes, I'll do that. But then if you think the person might doubt you, you might come along and say, I promise I'll do that, right? Now you've kind of made it more solemn, more serious. And that's really what a covenant does. It comes alongside an agreement and just goes through some ritual in that context that just says, this is, this is important, this is serious, something I'm going to take seriously. But specifically in the biblical context, we could say it like this. I'm going to put it in the context of the story. 
throughout the Old Testament, God is graciously redeeming people. And then as he redeems them and enters into relationship with them, he's formalizing that relationship as a covenant. Basically, it's a relationship that's based on the redemption he's already accomplished for them. So here's another way to say it. As God redeems people, he formalizes the relationship formed with them, and he does this, this formalizing of the relationship under the category of covenant. So in some ways, the relationship exists before that, but then kind of what's expected within that relationship is clarified in terms of the covenant. So in what way is covenant at the heart of the Old Testament? You can probably immediately begin recognizing that covenants are found pervasively throughout the Old Testament, but there's a difference between saying something's found numerous times and saying it's at the heart of it. It's different than saying, you know, it's, it's determining the trajectory of the Old Testament. But I would say that covenants determine the trajectory of the Old Testament. They form the backbone of the Old Testament. So in what sense is that the case? Well, because God's redemption is worked out through history, let's just think about it in terms of how that history unfolds, how the story unfolds. Since the fall... God has determined to restore and complete his purpose in creation. And he's doing that by redeeming a people for himself. So think about that. He creates humanity to serve him, but they all rebel. So then within that fallen humanity, he's redeeming for himself a people who will be like a new humanity, who will do what they were created to do, now being restored to that through redemption. And as he's doing that, he's restoring them to relationship with him, putting them back to work in his mission. That's why, you know, Israel is this people within all of God's creation. Um, Exodus 19, he says, like, you're a special people to me, even though all the earth is mine. It's like, I own all peoples, but there's a unique relationship to you. But then because he still has purposes with regard to everyone, he then calls them to be a light to the nations, right? So there's a balance there we have to recognize. So God has a redemptive purpose, a purpose he had before creation, knowing the fall would happen, but a redemptive purpose that he began implementing after the fall. And a very important part of that purpose in God's work of redeeming people and restoring them to relationship with him and then employing them in his work of redemption is this whole nature of creating a relationship with them. He comes to a person or people, he extends grace to them, he redeems them, he forgives them, and he employs them in his mission. And in that sense, God's work of redeeming people and entering into relationship with them, that would be a covenant, entering into relationship with them after redeeming them, is at the heart of the Old Testament. Not only because it's found throughout the Old Testament, but because really that whole process, right? God coming to people, saving them, um, making them a people for himself through covenant and then employing them in his mission is like what drives the biblical storyline. So that's the sense in which it's the backbone of the Old Testament. Let me say by way of caveat here, I've mentioned multiple times thinking about the Bible as a story. And sometimes we tend to think about theology or kind of redemption in ah-historical terms, ahistorical terms, right? Non-historical terms, kind of in Untemporal, what's the right term? Not untemporal, intemporal, intemporal? Anyway, non-temporal, we'll say that, non-temporal terms, right? Um, but really, God portrays redemption in terms of history, a story that's being worked out over time. We start at creation and we end where? New creation, right? So it's all on this big trajectory where, where God is planning to work this out over time 
And that's where the resurrection comes in so helpfully, because as Hebrews 11 says, that people all throughout that time, since it does work out over time, aren't realizing the fullness of what was promised to them as participants in that, but they will when they're resurrected and they participate in that, right? So helpful to think about it from that angle, because that's how scripture presents it. So at the heart of the Old Testament, in setting the trajectory for its story are covenants. But now, having established that, how does that relate to Thanksgiving? How does this whole idea of covenants relate to Thanksgiving? As I said, covenants are historically oriented. So let's break down the relationship between Thanksgiving and covenants into three categories. Past, present, and future. And first we'll consider like the past category in scripture. Um, And as we do this, I think I've got another slide here for us. The past perspective of the covenants. First, we need to think through the fact that the Lord's mighty acts and expressing gratitude for them is important in covenant. And we'll see this from two angles. Number one, most covenants begin with what we could call a historical preface. Like basically, we're going to enter into an agreement, but here's the the history of our relationship. There's already been some kind of history, so let's document what, what happened here leading up to this. So let's just see this in a couple texts. I'm encouraging you to take your Bibles, turn here, We'll walk through just a couple covenants, and it'll be just a few verses we'll read. So first, go to Exodus 19. So as we turn here, just kind of putting this in context, the Abrahamic covenant given in in Genesis is kind of the, the biggest, most significant covenant. And then first within that, kind of under its umbrella, you have what we might think of as the Mosaic Covenant. But really, that even comes in two parts. You remember there was the, the wandering in the wilderness for 40 years? Well, at the very beginning, they first go to Sinai after they come out of the Exodus. And there, God reveals himself to them at Sinai and makes a covenant with them. And then at the very end, they find themselves right across the Jordan on what Deuteronomy calls the Plains of Moab, ready to go into the land. And Moses can't go with them. So he kind of gives Deuteronomy this last set of speeches to them. And another covenant's made there. And really it's with a second generation. You guys remember the book of Numbers? In between Sinai and the covenant on the plains of Moab, all that first generation had to die, right? Except Joshua and Caleb because of their rebellion. So those two distinct covenants, historically speaking, are really kind of, we could call them like reaffirmations. It's the same essential covenant. But Exodus 19 is the first one. So this first covenant, we call it the Covenant Sinai, is given to us in Exodus 19 through 24. And that's where we find like the Ten Commandments when it's first, the first time it's given. But he begins in chapter 19 by giving us a quick summary of the essence of the Mosaic Covenant. And so look, we'll start in verse 3 of chapter 19. Moses went up to God, and the Lord said to him from the mountain, the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel. So here we go. Here's kind of the essence of the covenant. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. That's historical preface, right? Recounting what happened prior to that, that's really the foundation for entering into this agreement. Now, here's the kind of the essence of the agreement. Verse 5. Now, if you will indeed obey my voice 
and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me kings and priests in a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Wow, there's the Mosaic covenant in a nutshell, the essence of it. But what I want you to see is that's predicated upon history, right? In the past, what God had done for them in redemption. Now flip to Deuteronomy 29. This is where that second version of the Mosaic covenant is given. On the plains of Moab. So he starts with the introduction in verse 1. These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the sons of Israel in the land of Moab. Besides the covenant which he had made with them at Horeb. Horeb is the term used for Sinai in the book of Deuteronomy. Same location, different term. Verse 2. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and all his servants and all his land, the great trials which your eyes have seen, those great signs and wonders. Yet to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you, and your sandal has not worn out on your foot. You have not eaten bread, nor have you drunk wine or strong drink, in order that you might know that I am the Lord your God. When you reached this place, Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out to meet us for battle, but we defeated them, and we took their land and gave it as an inheritance to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of the Manassites. And then he goes in to the covenant here, verse 9. So keep the words of this covenant to do them. That's their responsibility. What's God's responsibility? That you may prosper in all that you do. So notice, though, how those first eight verses were all historical preface, right? Recounting what the Lord has been doing with them leading up to this covenant. Um, Joshua 24. Joshua 24 is basically, at the end of Joshua's life, they make, we might think of it as a covenant promising to keep a prior covenant. It might almost be like um, what do you call it? I'm trying to think of the term. When like a couple like on their 40th anniversary or 50th anniversary like recommitting to their vows. Is that what you call it? Rededicating. Rededicating. Okay, that must be the term. Yes. So there's already a covenant there, right? That hasn't been broken, but they're kind of saying we're going to make another covenant to keep a prior covenant. And that's really what Joshua is. It's not separate from the Mosaic covenant. It's basically the same thing, but they're saying a new generation. We're committing to keep that covenant our forefathers had already committed to keep on our behalf. And maybe I'll just read a sampling of this rather than all 13 verses, but just notice how it begins. Verse 2, this is Joshua 24. Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, from ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river, led him through all the land of Canaan, and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. To Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. And let's go and skip down further. Verse 6. I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, and Egypt pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen. But when they cried out to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, and brought the sea upon them and covered them. And your own eyes saw what I did in Egypt, and you lived in the wilderness for a long time. Then I brought you into the land of the Amorites. And it just continues on down through the end of verse 13, where he is explaining what he's done for them in the past. And then verse 14 comes the charge to them. 
In light of that, this is what we need to do in a relationship. And specifically, Joshua's kind of speaking to them on the Lord's behalf here. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. So there's, again, a historical preface that leads directly into the covenant being made. It's kind of built on that. And for the sake of time, I'm going to skip over 2 Samuel 7, 8, 9. You can check that out on your own if you want. But that there is essentially the Davidic covenant and God telling uh, David what he's reminding him of what he did for him previously, uh, leading up to that point where he makes the covenant with him. So not only is the... um, the past consistently recounted as the foundation for the covenants. That's the first thing I want you to see in terms of what's the relevance of the past to covenants. Well, it's, it's absolutely critical. It's like the foundation on which the covenants made. So not only is the past consistently recounted as the foundation for the covenants, but God's people, the people who are in covenant with him, are expected to honor him by thanking him. Notice I'm using the term their expectation. There's an expectation for this in the covenant. They're supposed to thank him, that is, by remembering what he did in the past to redeem them and praising him for it. And in part, this isn't surprising. What else are they to do? Right? God comes and makes an agreement with them. Like you take two kings, and two kings could make a covenant where it's kind of simple, right? Like, okay, you provide timber from the forest you have, and if you're ever in military harm, I'll send my chariots to help defend you. Right? There's kind of like this this um, congruity between them. One's able to provide one thing, another one's able to provide another thing, kind of like a business deal, right? But when God makes a covenant with his people, like what are they going to do for him in return? Basically what they do is he calls them to give thanks for him, to, to him. That's the primary thing that they are called to do. What else could we do? We could never repay him, but we can honor him by thanking him. And we see this, for example, in the festivals and the sacrifices. In many ways, these were simply ways to express thanksgiving to God, to remember what he had done for them in the past and to praise him for it. Think about how many of the festivals were specifically aimed at helping them remember what God did for them. These are not trick questions. Just think about it. The Passover. What does the Passover festival lead them to remember? The Exodus. The Exodus, right? Yeah. And Becky's using hand hand symbols. Yes. (laughs) That's right. Um, that the the angel of death passed over their houses, right? Spared the firstborn. So they're called on a yearly basis to remember this and praise the Lord for it. Clearly, remembrance is important. The Lord instituted this whole thing. Who knows how many over Israel's history, how many millions or billions of little sheep gave their lives so that God might be thanked in this act of remembrance, right? (laughs) From their perspective, it's very important. Another one would be the Feast of Unleavened Bread. What does that remember? Well, when they left Egypt, right, they didn't have time to leaven bread, and so they had to go with unleavened bread. And so it's reminding them of that by for seven days each year, right after the Passover, they only eat unleavened bread, just to remind them of that time and the way the Lord delivered them. But it's not only even about the great redemptive acts of the Lord. So often in the covenant, in the Old Testament, what they're supposed to remember is the Exodus. That's kind of like the apex of God's redemption for them in the Old Testament, But it even includes other things like all of God's just everyday ways of providing for them. The Feast of Tabernacles or Booths or Ingathering, it's called by different names. But that feast 
um, was for the purpose of thanking the Lord for the produce of the ground that he provided them as the year's coming to a close. This comes at the end of the year, and they're thanking them for all the produce. And it particularly comes right at the end of the ingathering of the fruit. So the fruit in their year, their agricultural year, was the last thing to be gathered in, and they're thanking him for it. But even earlier in the year, there was the Feast of Weeks, or a Pentecost, which came right at the end of the grain harvest. And so they're giving thanks for the grain that they were able to harvest. So the point is the Lord has put these things into place in the covenant, right? The need to observe the festivals is a part of what's prescribed for them to do in the covenant. And you might just see, see that and think, okay, the Lord expected them, if they're going to be in covenant with him, to, to do these silly festivals. But the essence of it is giving thanks to him, remembering what he's done and giving thanks to them, to him. Here's a passage that helps us see this, particularly with regard to um, sacrifices. Psalm 50. Turn to Psalm 50. In the context here, it seems that Israel was apparently kind of going through the motions of bringing sacrifices to the Lord and thereby honoring him in some outward sense. But he's kind of reproving them and saying, you aren't really intending to thank me. And so I don't really care for your meaningless sacrifices. And we see here that one of the functions of the offerings was to, to show thanks to the Lord. So look at verses beginning of verse 7. This is basically where he reproves them for their meaningless sacrifices. He says, Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I do not reprove you for your sacrifices, and your burnt offerings are continually before me. I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains, and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats? So basically he's saying, like, it's not just that I need this, where even if your heart's not in, I'm still going to take it from you, right? Like, imagine a, a, an impoverished person sitting on the street corner. Someone may walk by him and throw him some cash and not seem like they really care for him, but he's not going to reject the money, right? He's going to take it and maybe wish people cared a bit more for him, but he'll take the money. God's saying, it's not like I even have a need for this, like the poor person does, right? The whole reason of the sacrifices, reason for the sacrifices is so that you would be thanking me in them. And so if you're not doing that, like, I don't need them. I, I own everything you're bringing to me anyways. It's my, mine already. It's like, it's like when Bobby's kid gives one of his kids, give him a, a Father's Day present, right? I'm just picking on Bobby here, but, right? Like, who bought the Father's Day gift? Well, Bobby did, right? <laughs> but still, it's like, he doesn't benefit from it per se, but it's more so an expression of love from them to him, right? But if they're like, oh, whatever, Dad, I'm obligated to do this because it's Father's Day, well, that doesn't help him very much. Like, why'd you waste my money, right? <laughs> so it's a similar situation here. But then notice verse 14. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. And then the Lord continues his rebuke in verse 16. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to tell of my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth? For I, you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you are pleased with him and you associate with adulterers. You let your mouth loose in evil and your tongue frames deceit. 
You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. I Are these things you have done and I kept silence? You thought that I was just like you. I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. Now consider this, you who forget God, or I will tear you in pieces and there will be none to deliver. Verse 23, he who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me. You guys see that? The point is just to see in this psalm how repeatedly the Lord makes it clear that the heart of the sacrificial system is the giving of thanks. That's really what it's all about. Their role in the covenant is to offer thanks to the Lord for what he's done for them. Here's how one commentator states it. The essence of the whole sacrificial system was to be found in thanksgiving and fulfillment of vows. Verse 14. For at root, the covenant community did not exist for the temple, but the temple and... um, he says it's cult. That's a term we're often prone to misunderstand because of how we use the word cult. But in Old Testament studies, cult just refers to the whole system of festivals, of sacrifices, all of that. The whole arrangement set up there. So, but the temple and its cult existed only as an avenue through which the worship and thanksgiving of the covenant people could be directed to God. And then he continues on the next page. The concluding verse, verse 23, reemphasizes the point of verse 14. The true meaning of the sacrifice and the recitation of the law in the covenant renewal ceremony was to be found in Thanksgiving. It's kind of what it all points toward. So, one way we can see the importance of God's past acts of redemption in the Old Testament, and particularly in the context of kind of covenant, is the historical preface in most Old Testament covenants. Another way is that the Mosaic Covenant expects the people to remember and praise God for his redemption. And even though the Old Testament often doesn't use the word thanks, it's basically referring to that, to to remember and to praise God for that. There's actually one, as I was doing the study, one Old Testament theologian who says, like, the Old Testament doesn't know anything of thanksgiving. But I think it's a bit too narrowly focused on like how often specifically that word occurs, right? The whole concept is included in the regular calls to remember the Lord and his mighty acts and to praise him for it. And then it, the, the Old Testament covenants encourage this with the festivals and sacrifices that are prescribed by the covenant. And Psalm 50 is just one text that helps us to see that. We're running out of time, so let me Take a few more minutes, and then we'll stop kind of short. Next, I was going to go to how this Old Testament background, in terms of the past of the covenant, carries over into the New Testament, where we see how we aren't without a covenant in the New Testament. Sometimes we forget we're members of a covenant too, but what do we call the covenant we're a part of? The New Covenant, right? And it too has its, you could call it like its festivals, to cause us to remember the great acts of God, right? People are baptized, we, we celebrate the Lord's Supper, and what do we remember in the Supper, right? We remember the blood and the, the bread, or the blood and the body, right? What Christ did in his death and resurrection. It's there for the purpose of causing us to remember this. And so it's really very similar. There's a lot of carryover. So I want to draw those connections out. But because of time, we'll leave that for next week. We'll pick up there. But let's just kind of wrap up one last dimension in the Old Testament context of how... Th- God's redemptive work for his people, such as the Exodus in the Old Testament, how that plays more of a role than just being why they give thanks, but the fact that they're always called back to give thanks for these kind of covenant-forming events 
has an identity shaping role for them. Here's what I mean by this. There's all kinds of things that any of us can give thanks for. And it'll sound just like our neighbor, right? We can give thanks for family. We can give thanks for God providing for our needs. And those are all good things. By me say, put, saying in this context isn't to discount that. We should be giving thanks for those things. But there are the things that Israel was called to give thanks for that are unique to Israel. Giving thanks for the Exodus is something the nations around them can't give thanks for, can they? The fact that the Lord delivered them in the Exodus is a critical part of defining who they are as God's people, isn't it? Different than what other people could do. And so there's this thanksgiving, especially when it comes to remembering these significant events that the Lord does in redeeming us, has an identity-forming role. It reminds us of who we are. We aren't just like anyone else being blessed by God's common grace. We are those who are blessed by a special redemptive grace, and that really is at the heart of what we give thanks for. So I can say it this way, kind of in application. When we are giving thanks for God's redemption of us, we are continually reminding ourselves of our identity. Our identity is unique compared to the rest of the world in that we are God's people by his sovereign action, redeemed, provisioned, and transformed by him. So for Paul, giving thanks to God is, this is a concession, it is about little blessings, but even more importantly, it's about salvation history. It's about God's redemptive mission. To say it in another way, as we give thanks, people should be able to hear those distinctive aspects that fundamentally identify us as the covenant people of God. Does that make sense? And what I'm drawing that from in the Old Testament is that so often what they're called to remember and praise the Lord for isn't just the little blessings, the daily blessings, but is what formed them as his people. In the Old Testament, the Exodus. In the New Testament, that regularly becomes Christ's death and resurrection. We'll pick up there next week. Any thoughts? Questions? Comments? All right. Let me pray for us. Lord, we do thank you for Christ's death and resurrection. Apart from that, we would, we would be those who are still rebels wandering about on your creation, seeking somehow to, to worship and serve ourselves with the resources you've put at our disposal to worship and serve you, and it would be all for naught. It would all be fruitless and empty, and you haven't left us there. You've reconciled us, you've redeemed us, you've drawn us back into relationship with yourself, and you've put us back into, into our role as humans living in relation to you to serve you. And so we thank you, Lord, for that. And I pray that you would help us as we continue on this study about Thanksgiving to really be able to go back and reread some of Paul's Thanksgiving in his letters and May they resonate with our own mind even more so because our minds are being renewed as we learn to think biblically. I pray, Lord, that as we continue to put these pieces together, that we would uh, just build upon this week after week and, and putting this into our thinking throughout the week, that we will be those who are growing in gratitude to you. Just taking what we're learning on Sundays and then putting that into practice. I want to be more grateful this week, expressing that to the Lord for what he's done in the death and resurrection of Christ. 
And I, I need to recognize that that is a central purpose for Christ's death and resurrection, that the people he redeems would worship him for what he did. We would hate the thought that the lamb would not receive the glory due his name for his work. And so may that not be true among us. May we not be those who are lacking in gratitude for that, but who are overflowing, among whom thanksgiving to you for what you've done to us and in us and on our behalf would be abounding. I pray you'd help us to do that. Remind us of these things, Lord, that we might keep coming back to them. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.